The, the title for today was Medicine and Healthcare and Their Differences. And I was just sitting in the front row talking to Dr. Anderson, and he was asking me about my methods of putting talks together, and I said, well, they grow. Um, this one's been around for a long while in one form or another. Um, it began when I started at long last to take an interest in the education of medical students. For many years, I gave the lectures that I was required to give and walked out and routinely put the... I don't know what this is doing here. It's rather frightening to find a, a cable that goes nowhere. Uh, and put their assessments of my lectures in the garbage unopened. Um, God changed that in his own sorts of ways with a quotation from the 13th century uh, my best friend in the University of Philosopher, I claim he found it. He claims I found it, but one of us found it, that's for sure. Um, it's Bernard of Clairvaux, and he described the pursuit of knowledge thus. He said, there are some who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge, that is curiosity. Well, I had done that for 25 years since I earned my living as a research physician. And what the dean was concerned with was not my clinical work, but the fact that I brought in money in the form of grants and published papers. And I knew that as long as I was doing that, I was perfectly safe from any form of uh, punishment for misbehavior. Uh, and there was plenty of things I didn't need to bother about, amongst which, of course, were whether the students appreciated my lectures or not. It wouldn't make any difference. Um, so I had, I had followed curiosity for a good many years. That's what a research scientist does. We play with what I call very expensive Lego and then persuade the rest of the world that it's worth paying for. Usually, of course, it isn't, but they don't know that. And we don't know, of course, what's going to matter and what isn't. The second one was more difficult. Bernard goes on to say, there are others who seek knowledge in order that they themselves may be known, and that is vanity. From that day onwards, I referred to my CV as my curriculum vanitas, because that's what it is. I was always somewhat inclined to cynicism, and I knew that the average scientific paper, even in the mainline literature, is read by six people, including the referees, and usually they misread it to boot. Uh, it's not about knowledge. It's about careers. They don't read my papers. They weigh them. Uh, I'd done that so guilty of the first two the third one was uh, still there are others who seek knowledge in order to sell it and that is dishonourable I'd done that too he doesn't mean making a living but he does mean making a killing as an academic you had opportunities to do that every now and again uh, a drug company would call you and ask you to give a lecture, and being the cynic I was, I always looked at the date of the lecture and today's date, knowing that if they were close together, it meant that I was not the first choice, and the person who had said yes had just bailed out on them, and they were facing a great deal of embarrassment. The cynical thing to say is, I don't really think I want to do that, at which point they double the honorarium. And so it goes on. It's rather like, how long will you sit on your hands in the airport when they ask for a volunteer? Only more so. And I had done that as well. So I was guilty of the first three, but the fourth killed me. Uh, there are others who seek knowledge in order to edify others, and that is love. And I was not guilty of that. And with my wife's assistance, I began to change. And I began to take, for the first time in my life, interest in education, which rapidly developed into a hatred of the faculty of education, which I hold responsible for destroying the whole process to a large degree. And that's in part what I'm going to talk about now. You see, medicine and healthcare are not the same beast at all. And so often in the medical community and the mission community, we like comfortable words and we don't think carefully about what they mean and what they imply. And this is a very good example of that. Auden understood what medicine was really about a long while ago when he wrote a typically Auden-esque few lines about the doctor. The doctor that he wanted when he came to the end of his life. He wrote, give me a doctor partridge plump, short in the leg and broad in the rump, 
an endomorph with gentle hands, who will not make absurd demands that I abandon all my vices, nor pull long faces in a crisis, but with a twinkle in his eye will tell me that I have to die. Now that's about as far away as you can get from the modern medical school. There is no technical proficiency in what Auden is looking for. It's a human being who understands where he is and what's going to happen to him next in human terms. Uh, the kinds of teaching that go on in medical school allegedly to deal with that have neither the depth nor the wisdom to achieve the end that they require. Uh, we're in deep trouble. Healthcare, on the other hand, is rooted in science. I think it hopes to be the scientific investigation and treatment of disease with the objective of increasing public health. Now, that's an entirely different matter that we're talking about now. Uh, the most important distinction that you need to recognize is the difference in the ethical systems of those two approaches uh, to the fact that we are all mortal beings and we will all die, and most of us will die with a disease rather than just of old age. Uh, the ethics of medicine as it began way, way back are covenantal, and their primary virtue was in fact compassion caring for the other person. The secret in caring for the patient is to care for the patient. Uh, as a great American physician put it. On the other hand, public health ethics are utilitarian ethics of the best outcome for the most people. It's very hard to practice both forms of ethics simultaneously. You need to ask some difficult questions. If one goes back, I think the best description that I know of medicine is the famous aphorism, which was French, but in English it reads, medicine is to cure sometimes, to alleviate often, and to comfort always. Um, those of us who have been in medicine a few years become increasingly aware that we don't cure very much, do we? Some things. Uh, it's wonderful to give the single dose of penicillin to a child with the appropriate pneumonia, and you know you're going to give a course of penicillin, but actually, probably in many cases, one dose would do. It's so magical. When that happens, it's wonderful to have someone walk into your office and to know what's wrong with them and know that they're going to be cured in 24 hours is a great gift. And uh, we rarely have it. In my own experience, I guess the example of it is slightly longer than a 24-hour period, but I spend a large chunk of my life dealing with severely malnourished children, 10-pound two-year-olds. Uh, basically, I was privileged to be part of the team that did the science in the 1970s in Jamaica, funded by the Wellcome Trust. Uh, science that still hasn't made it, by the way, into most uh, mission hospital protocols, yeah, which is rather sad since uh, we're looking at 40 years now since the work was done, and it's still not I've still yet to go to a mission hospital that does it properly. Um, but uh, to have a woman bring her baby to you in that setting, most of them were self-referrals from the, the slums of Kingston where another woman would say, the only place where that baby can survive is the TMRU. And so we were known within the slums and the woman would bring the baby. Uh, an expensive trip for her up to the university, two bus fares. Um, and she would say, can you save my baby? And I would be able to say, well, well, we'll make a valiant attempt and we have a very good chance that we will. And then I would ask for permission to do some research as well at the same time. And she always said yes. I mean, she, it was called uh, consent, but of course it had no such meaning. She was, as usual, totally in our hands. What she really needed to know was our ethics, but she would never ask that. And then often those women were so poor they wouldn't be able to get back for three or four weeks or more. And then because the unit had been built by the Wellcome Trust it was a little impressive on the front side 
overwhelming for women from the slums, so they tended to walk around the back and come into the ward, which is, we had a laboratory at one end, a ward at the other, and they would come in from the grass through the veranda windows. And it was not rare for them to burst into tears because they could not see their baby. And then you'd have the wonderful privilege of saying, no, don't cry, he's here, and go and get the baby. The baby would recognize her before she recognized the baby because often we had doubled its weight in that time. We were making children grow at 25 to 30 times the normal rate for age. This is real science, applied science, uh, and it worked. But what a privilege to, to see that happen. I wish I'd had a video of it, but in the 70s we didn't think of such things, of course. Uh, that's a great pleasure. But most of the time, we can alleviate often, but we should always comfort. And particularly as Christians, we ought to have a deeper understanding of what that means. Many of you, how many of you have the misfortune of working in more intensive than careful units? You know exactly what I mean, don't you? Uh, meddlesome medicine practiced largely for the benefit of lawyers. That should not be. Read Wendell Berry's lovely short story, Fidelity, if you want uh, an absolutely beautiful description of what's at stake and, and uh, lots to think about. And it's amazing. Uh, I've tried in my visits here to get the bookstore here to stock Wendell Berry. After all, he, he lives just a few miles away. Just so I see whether I have to go on doing this. How many of you have not read a Wendell Berry novel or essay? Yeah, like doctors. Just in case, have any of you actually read one? Wasn't, isn't he a great discovery? You don't read Wendell Berry and not become a Wendell Berry fan. Uh, so there's some Christmas presents for you. Uh, he's written a social history of an imagined community just up the river. Uh, they're wonderful novels. And every Christian doctor, everybody in healthcare should read Life is a Miracle. It's just a beautiful essay. Uh, only Wendell Berry could start a discussion of the nature of life and how wrong uh, the sociobiologists are with a discussion of King Lear. But he does. And it's well worth reading. Now, I've got off track already, but that's what I always do. So uh, I wasn't intending to do this, but it's got a lot about the difference between medicine and healthcare, if you can see what, I'm, what Wendell Berry is saying in this. This is um, from Life is a Miracle. Uh, it's a slightly long quotation, but if you pay attention, do you think you can at this time of day? Uh, you might gain a great deal. The problem, and he's talking about reductionism, which we'll say more about in a moment, as it appears to me, is that we are using the wrong language. The language we use to speak of the world and its creatures, including ourselves, has gained a certain analytical power, along with a lot of expertish pomp, but has lost much of its power to designate what is being designated, analysed, or to convey any respect or care or affection or devotion towards it. Does that describe conversations at the end of the bed? Unable to convey any respect, care, affection or devotion towards the patient. As a result, we have a lot of genuinely concerned people calling upon us to save a world which their language simultaneously reduces to an assemblage of perfectly featureless or dispirited ecosystems, organisms, environments, mechanisms, and you might add clients. It is impossible to prefigure the salvation of the world in the same language by which the world has been dismembered or defaced. By almost any standard, it seems to me, the reclassification of the world from creature, made in the image of God, a machine must involve at least a perilous reduction of moral complexity. So must the shift in our attitude towards the creation from reverence to understanding. So must the shift in our perceived relationship to nature from that of steward to absolute owner, manager or engineer. So must our permutation of holy to holistic. At this point, I can only declare myself I think that the poet and scholar Kathleen Rain was correct in reminding us that life, like holiness, can be known only by being experienced. To experience it is not to figure it out or even to understand it, but to suffer it 
and rejoice in it as it is. In suffering it and rejoicing in it as it is, we know we cannot understand it completely. We know, moreover, that we do not wish to have it appropriated by somebody else's claim to have understood it. Though we have life, it is beyond us. We do not know how we have it or why. We do not know what is going to happen to it or to us. It is not predictable. Though we can destroy it, we cannot make it. It cannot, except by reduction and grave risk of damage, be controlled. It is, as Blake said, holy. To think otherwise is to enslave life and to make not humanity but a few humans its predictably inept masters. You're in the midst of uh, some political fever on some of the points that Wendell Berry is touching there. And you can see your predictably inept masters in the wings waiting to move on stage. And a lot of people will die. Uh, When humans presume to know what is at stake, we are in deep trouble. You can put me on your prayer list if you have a mistake, because in January... I'm going to debate Peter Singer at the Wayne State University in Detroit. Uh, That should be fun. Uh, But uh, I will certainly uh, covet your prayers for that because he's almost uh, a paragon of what Obama would like and what we need to think about. Healthcare, utilitarian ethics as judged by us. Medicine? Caring for the patient in which compassion is the primary virtue and the ethics, of course, are covenantal uh, or should be. No client, no contractual relationship, but a covenantal relationship in which the doctor and the nurse should say to the patient, we will go with you to the gates of death. As Peter Berger beautifully put it, our job is to put banners into the hands of people marching to death. Uh, And children, of course, do this best. Those of you who've had the privilege of seeing a child who in their own beautiful and innocent way loved Jesus dying, it's one of the most beautiful things you ever see. The promise of the gospel is true. They do not die. They go from this life to that one. And they see beyond the threshold before they cross it. Uh, As one little girl said to her mother, waking up from a coma just before she died, And then going back, dead, she said, Mummy, can you see the angels? Can you hear their singing? It's beautiful. That's what Christ can do uh, for that transition. We have been intimidated into refusing to use our own language in the public square. We need to rub the noses of the world in what we know. Uh, Do what Jesus did with Nicodemus. When Nicodemus asked him how to teach like you do, He didn't give him a lesson on how to teach. He said, sorry, there's no hope. It cannot happen until you are born of the Spirit. What is needed is beyond your resources. God must come to you first. Until you are born of the Spirit, you cannot comprehend. Uh, That's our story. Or should be. Doesn't look like it, or it didn't look like it in my medical life for most of it, sadly. Uh, You see, both the covenantal ethics of medicine that are typified in that way. And by the way, if we do go down the route we're going, I really urge you to visit the the Registry of Hippocratic Physicians, which we have set up. Um, I think we should be planning now to divide medicine into two practices. Not on the basis of medicine, but on the basis of ethics and understanding philosophy of medicine. Um, I'm not going to talk about that today, but if you haven't um, read what Hippocrates knew and we have forgotten, visit my website and download it for free and read it. But it seems to me, just very briefly, there are four things that distinguish us from non-Christians. Some of the best non-Christians actually have some of these things and don't realize where they came from, and it's our job to help them understand that. But Hippocrates knew that if your doctor does not fear judgment after death, he is rationally less trustworthy than if he does. The fact that we all wish to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, ought to have an impact on the way you practice medicine. 
Secondly, Hippocrates understood that medicine is not, in fact, a scientific activity. It's primarily a moral one. Because does any patient have to take your advice? The answer is no, isn't it? So what you do with a patient is not tell them what to do, but help them to understand what they ought to do. Now, when you hear the word ought or should or must, the various permutations on the subjunctive tense, you have left science. Science is an is language. It's usually an is that is wrong most of the time, but we think it's right. Uh, But it's a physical description of the world as we understand it at the moment. All science is provisional. The people that I have to deal with in the university think that science is true and metaphysics is wrong. It's the other way around. From day one, there's always been the category of truth and falsehood, love and hatred, justice and injustice, fidelity and infidelity. That is the moral universe. It has those dimensions and there's a dead end at both ends of it. Science is always provisional. I've taught biochemistry for the last 25 years. I mean, there's been an awful lot of change in that time. When I started my own research, I was interested in something I didn't know about. I I knew it was a protein. I didn't know it was an enzyme. Uh, So the the whole understanding of what's at stake changed every year. The best model in in 1960 was not the, the same model by 1965, and so on. It's always changing. It's provisional. Even when it appears to predict the right outcomes, it can be wrong. Uh, Ptolemy's model of the cosmos lasted for some 1,400 years or so, or getting on that way, and it was wrong. Copernicus was no better at prediction than Ptolemy's. It was just more elegant. Of course, it took Kepler to make the next step, where you had a model that was more elegant and predicted more precisely. Um, But no, science should be treated uh, with the disrespect uh, and scepticism that it rightly deserves from its history. And it ought also to recognize that it would not have happened at all but for Christianity. And if you want that argument laid out for you, there are two books I would recommend. One by an unbeliever who's currently uh, slipping into Alzheimer's. I hope he's become a Christian before that happened. That's David Lindbergh from Madison. And the book is called The Beginnings of Western Science. And just in the last couple of years, uh, uh, Rodney Stark from Baylor has published a lovely book called um, To the Glory of God, or For the Glory of God, I can't remember which it is. Uh, but there's a wonderful description of, the, of what most historians of science would agree to, the absolute necessity of a Christian understanding of the world for the development of science, as we know it, particularly experiment. I have a bit more to say about that in a moment or two. I must move on. The problem with both these views, both the the old medical view with covenantal ethics and the new uh, healthcare one with utilitarian ethics, uh, which is prepared to sacrifice some for the benefit of others. In other words, to think in the terms of the Nazis, a life not worthy to be lived. And that, of course, is the basic outcome of the Human Genome Project. Human Genome Project to date is not producing life on the grand scale, but it is producing eugenic abortion on the grand scale. And we are targeting, what, 20 or 30 conditions at this stage. I'm not practicing pediatrics anymore at the moment, so I'm always a bit behind on these things. It won't be less than that, though. It'll be more. Uh, We put people to death after the Second World War for eugenic uh, behavior. Um... Now we give them prizes. Peter Singer would approve of it. I say to students, what you are facing is what I call the tyranny of the measurable. This is what Peter Singer doesn't understand. That because you can measure something, it doesn't make it of more importance than something that you can't measure. My way of illustrating it is to say, I imagine that in a very few years in the U.S., there will be an insurance company that offers you a very cheap insurance for your new baby up to, say, the age of 15 or 16. But there will be some small print. And the small print will be that the baby has to pass some tests in utero. And if it doesn't pass those tests, the liability of the insurance company will cease at the cost of an abortion. Will there be takers? 
They will, won't they? There will certainly be takers. Now, to get a sense of what this involves, somebody has to look at the genomic data initially of those babies. Uh, it will be computerized as rapidly as possible to put some distance between us and the outcomes. But initially, people will have to do it. Now, you might be on the committee that, shall we say, is looking at the genomic data of babies. Let's say on the same day, you have an in utero Mike Tyson and an in utero Helen Keller. And let's say that Helen Keller was blind and deaf uh, with a genetic disorder, which it could have been. I know it was a postnatal infection, but let's imagine that it was genetic. Which of those two will survive the test? That's a no-brainer, isn't it? Everything that we could measure about Mike Tyson was superb. Everything that, well, not everything, but many of the things that we could measure about Helen Keller were disastrous. But who contributed to America? Helen Keller made a wondrous contribution and allowed Anne Sullivan to demonstrate and contribute too. But this is the direction we're going. We've already reduced the prevalence of cystic fibrosis in many parts of this continent by 20% since we got the gene. Is it going to be a better world? I don't think so. The last clinic that I ran was for severely disabled children with metabolic disorders and quadriplegia from CP. Uh, the end of those afternoon clinics, I was often in doubt as to who the patient was. Was it me or them? The medievals understood this. The much maligned medievals would say of such children that they are closer to God than we are because they don't take a grudge into tomorrow. Would your workplace be better if everybody arrived on Monday with no hangover grudges from previous experience? We can't do that, can we? In fact, most churches have people who are embittered for the whole of their lives by their inability to have mercy. And they need to work on that. No, when we've got rid of all the disabled, the world will not be a better place. It will be a worse place. Empathy and sympathy will be at a very low ebb. Our selfishness will come to the fore. That's the reality. So, our, the ethics of compassion are vulnerable to a world which thinks in utilitarian terms. But the utilitarian ethics, of course, are vulnerable in another way in that they will produce a world that you don't want to live in. We need to talk about these things much more actively than we are at present. When I first went, was persuaded to go to Africa with a mission group, I had a very difficult decision to make because uh, I got there and the mission uh, was run by a very good doctor who was an internist and also uh, there was a surgeon there, uh, but no pediatrician. They, they ran the pediatric ward uh, themselves. Now, I ran the pediatric ward while I was there for a year on the first occasion and in the summer to begin with. But I was actually there to try and help them understand and to work out what we could do with the malnourished children because any village in sub-Saharan Africa has at least a 5% malnutrition rate. What's really interesting about it is I don't need to take any food with me into the villages, it's there. It turns out, in my view, that malnutrition is a cultural disease, not a medical one. But that's another story. Uh, which I'm not sure I will probably talk about in the other uh, workshop that I'm going to give. So I had a decision to make. Do I save individual lives or do I spend my time not saving any life in the hope that I might be able to make a real difference to the way we deal with a major problem? That's not an easy choice, is it? But it's important to get it clear. Now, fortunately, our Lord gives us some help. Uh, not as specific to what I did, although he had things to do in that area as well. Have you ever noticed how the Sermon on the Mount 
opens before you get to the first beatitude. It's a verse for doctors. Anybody know where it is? Well, it says this. Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up the mountain. It's like you going to the office and saying, not today, I have other things to do. In Jesus' case, he'd been healing lots of people uh, at the end of chapter 4. And the crowds were there to be healed the next morning. There always would be crowds, wouldn't there? But he said no. I do wish Matthew had told us how he did it. Uh, But nevertheless, he went up the mountain and taught the Sermon on the Mount. Aren't we glad that he did? So we need to think about God's priorities. We need to pray uh, and make decisions. Now, in this particular instance, it, it was clear to me, actually, that the skill that I had was in the area of trying to understand the problem. It turned out in the end that that I ended up doing more preaching than teaching. Well, it was teaching, but it was theological, not scientific. This has never been a successful nutrition education program in sub-Saharan Africa, or at least when I last looked about four or five years ago. And I insist that before you all say, but we do it effectively, that doesn't prove it. If you're there, you haven't proved anything. What has got to happen is a change in the way children are fed so that malnutrition disappears has got to happen and all expatriate input has to disappear before evaluation. Otherwise, it's not enculturated, is it? Now, after the Second World War, there was a lot of malnutrition in Holland, but before the, U- before the NATO, the Allied forces could even set up a committee and get it to report on what to do, there was no malnutrition. An entirely different culture with a different view of the relative value of children, women and men compared to Africa or India. It's that, that's where the problem lies. It doesn't lie with intelligence. It lies with culture. Uh, very different worlds. So I had to come to terms with that and I didn't save as many lives and uh, initially I didn't uh, even do the bit that our Lord would have us do, I think, in many ways. But America ought to understand this because you're the only nation in the world that developed effectively from very uh, raw beginnings without any aid programs. None. Canada, similarly. But of course, what the US and Canada had was great riches, which the current leadership, more so in your country than ours at the moment, at least we have a Christian Prime Minister, whether he understands how far that goes, I don't know. But yours is the only nation, that, and Canada too, that began with an agreement about what good and evil were. So the government didn't have to do that. The old cowboy movies. The bad guys knew they were bad, didn't they? And when they got caught, they accepted it. That's what happens. Those categories were were given. They were real. They were understood. That provides an incredible framework. It's what Moses said to the children of Israel. Your greatest possession, Deuteronomy 4, is that you have a law given by God which is better than anyone else's. I mean, very politically incorrect statement to make. There's Moses saying, Jewish culture formed by God's gift of the law is better than any other. The Muslims hate it to this day, but uh, we're not meant to hate it, we're meant to join it. Uh, The Jews didn't help in that in many ways, but they didn't hide it completely. But God said, if you will keep this law, it will go well with you and your children forever. It's an enculturated moral law that is essential to public health. Uh, And depending upon that law, you will be able to achieve some things and not others. If you are missionaries in an animistic culture, for instance, what is the major explanation of all the existential questions? Why death? Why suffering? Why random failure of crops? Why terrible government? All, you know, the things that the psalmist complains about... In an animistic world, the explanation is evil spirits, isn't it? And that is a very good explanation in terms of power. In fact, as an explanation of living in an African village, evil spirits make much more sense than a god of love at first sight, don't they? 
If you've been living in Kivu for the last few years with the most unreported war there is in the world at the moment and rape and pillage going on everywhere around you, how much evidence is there of God of love there? But evil spirits make perfect sense. So the first thing that has to change is that mindset. Now, I am going to talk about the next step in that, so this is going to be left hanging in uh, why can't I trust the Christians with the money? It's not unrelated. So back to this one, medicine and healthcare. Learning a little history can help a lot. Medicine has a very long and rich history. It began way, way back. Uh, with compassion that what happened it came out of the monasteries and before that there was also signs that what Jesus had done was going to change the world in ways that nobody could have predicted I think I maintain I'm perhaps a little bit off the wall at this point but I think that the early church succeeded primarily because of improved childcare. does that surprise you? The reason I say that is that the first letter I know written by a Roman politician about Christians in the first centuries says this, these Christians are not exposing their own children and moreover they are rescuing the exposed children of others. What should I do? The Romans never solved that problem. This is before we had organized churches. when the tradition was largely oral, there were a few scraps of Paul's letters and other things circulating in the Old Testament. That was it. But simply by meditating on that story and meditating on their own experience of Jesus coming into their lives, early Christians clearly drew a very important lesson. One that we, for the last hundred years, no, since 1960 really, or thereabouts, Certainly just over the last 50 years, a lesson that we have neglected in the Protestant church. Their conclusion was that we ought not to look down on God's gift of fertility. Do we look down on the gift of fertility? Oh yes, we do. But that also is another story. But the early church said, no, God only gives good gifts. Now, there had always been the thought that we can't handle a child at this point. That's not a new thought. That's been universal in human history. But they decided that they would trust God with this too. So there was no abortion for the poor, at least, and the wealthy did have some access to things like that, but it was highly dangerous. So the best thing to do was to leave the child at the city gates. In many cities, there was a place designated, and you dumped a baby you didn't want at that position. If somebody wanted, they could pick it up. Otherwise, the dogs ate it. That's basically what happened. And nobody bothered. It was so normal that there's another letter at that time written by a soldier to his wife. Uh, And it could have been written now until the penultimate line or so where he says, I hope the pregnancy is going well. If it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, expose it. Love, John. That's a stunning world, isn't it, for us? But these Christians stopped doing that. They found, to their astonishment, that they were doing better. Because, of course, when babies come into a church, does that make the church a better or a worse place? It makes it better, doesn't it? Even the lovely practice in America, uh, not so much in many other parts of the world, but the lovely practice of taking food round to a family that's just had a new baby so that they don't have to cook for a week or two. It builds bonds, doesn't it? It builds relationships. A church without children is already dying. Um, So they began to get closer, to help one another. They also began to live better lives. Men in particular... The man who goes into the the delivery suite for his first child and the man who comes out is very, very different. It's one of the stunning moments of change in the world of a man. Women have some sense of what's going to happen early on. They know about these things intuitively. But men have not a clue. 
And they come out from that experience and the day before they couldn't care less about who was manning the crossings or whether the, the playground was safe or any of those sorts of things. And now suddenly they start to think about it. My best friend who was a, in the university who was a, a Kant scholar for many years, still is, I mean he can quote it all and knows it all, a philosopher. But when his first son was born in Toronto near midnight, he walked out from that experience and then walked the streets of Toronto all night, realizing that there was no way he was going to bring up that young man based on Kant. He had been brought up on the Bible and he needed to do the same. That baby brought him back to faith. That's what babies do. They changed the world for the better. The early church found that. And the next step? Well, you imagine, shortly after they found this work so well, their empathy and sympathy started to ripple outwards. And they started to pick up the children who'd been left at the gates by other people. Now imagine such a child reaching the age where this can be explained. And mom and dad say, we have to tell you a story. And the story, of course, is that they are not natural children to the family. But they say, because Jesus loved us, we loved you. And you are our children now. And we thank God for you. Does that child need the gospel to be preached? It's done, isn't it? This is pure St. Francis. Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. Uh, that's what happened to the early church. This is our story. These are the ethics that we should be modeling. We've a lot of repentance to do, I know. Uh, but do it. I wish that we'd had the teaching uh, that I would give now when we were at the stage of starting our family. Um, I gave a lecture in uh, Edmonton last weekend and there was a baby at the lecture for my benefit because dad is just coming towards the end of his residency and he heard me talk about babies in medical school being God's gift that you can trust God use natural family planning if Jesus turns up the Holy Spirit turns up one night the most fertile of the month and turns you on for one another you will not resist but neither will you be taken by surprise you will know exactly when it happened and he knows what he's doing and he, they brought the baby because the baby is precisely that uh, your problem in residency is that you're too neurotic babies don't accept that they can expunge large amounts of neuroticism. You're going to pass anyway at the end. Uh, their life was changed. And of course, everybody wanted to see the baby. Uh, it's unusual to have a baby at a CMDS banquet, but everybody likes it. And the few interruptions in my talk were welcome. You know. Our world should be different. We should be different. So our history began with that, grew out of the monasteries when there was little in the way of effective treatment but much in the way of compassion and simple hygiene and cleanliness. And Out of that, in due course, grew the medicine we know. But the enlightenment, which I prefer to call an endarkenment, really was an endarkenment in this area. Up until Newton... Everybody knew that moral facts were more important than physical facts. But beginning in about the 13th and 14th centuries, the erosion of the value of moral facts began with Ockham and with Descartes and with Bacon. Facts changed from being moral facts to being physical facts. Physical facts have the characteristics that they can be measured. Moral facts, of course are qualitative, aren't they? Can you measure love, justice, truth, honour? No. Does that mean they're not real? No. They have always been there and they are what they are. But when Bacon and Descartes and Ockham, Descartes and Ockham both being 
uh, and Bacon claiming to be Christian, said just collect facts, meaning physical facts that can be measured. We were on our way to a world that was going to be very different. And by the time Newton had finished and given us a mechanical model of the cosmos, and at the same time the Catholic Church had had the misfortune of mishandling Galileo, uh, the credibility of the church was undermined. And the Protestant church, sadly, when it began, had the disadvantage of coming into being at about that point, so that we begin to look upon the things which can be, to some degree, measured as more important than the things that can't. Uh, That was not a smart move. I often say that when you hear sola scriptura, uh, if you listen carefully, softly in the background, you hear a little phrase saying, and we'll tell you what it means. See, every text does have to be interpreted, doesn't it? And we need the richness of a long qualitative understanding to make those judgments right. But that happened at a time when quantitative uh, measurements were the dominant ones. So we tended for quite a long while to make our theology, which after all is our work, God gave us a story, we write the theology, right? Hopefully responding to the Holy Spirit, but clearly not always. Theology is not unimportant by any means, but it can be taken too seriously. And certainly when it moves on into church rule books, which are not important, but some people know them better than they know the Bible, we're in deep trouble. And nowadays, we have got to the point, I think, in many cases, where we practice what I call propositional teaching. Sign this set of propositions. Do you believe in God? Yes. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. If you confess your sins? Yes. You ask Jesus in your heart? Yes. Take care, you're a Christian. Are you? Well, if you are, it's not because you signed those propositions. Jesus told us that. Unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot comprehend. We need to talk about our conversions as they really happened. And they really happened as non-explanatory stories. Um, Your conversion is yours and nobody else's. And it is not an explanatory model that's transposable to other people. Sure, you come to accept those propositions, but that merely proves that something quite remarkable has happened in your head. Because lots of intellectuals can't. And the really smart ones, like Nagel, the atheist philosopher from the US, says... It really upsets me that many of the people that I admire most intellectually believe in God, and I don't. He understands that it's not a propositional thing. That isn't what made you a Christian. It was God bringing it to life. And because we like to express the gospel in terms that suit their vocabulary, we we think we're doing them a service. We're not. We do them a service by rubbing their nose in the reality that there are things that they don't understand and that are necessary. Missionaries ought to recognize that. The way you do medicine coming from a Judeo-Christian story is very different from somebody coming from a pagan story, isn't it? And becoming a Christian doesn't immediately transform them into you. Again, that's the next talk, so I won't go into it more deeply. Simply to summarize it like this in a one-liner that you can mull over. I look upon Africa as a largely newly Christian continent in a fading pagan story. And I look upon America as a newly soft nihilistic continent in a fading Christian story. Where do you want to be in the long run? If the world fell apart... I'd head for Africa because the outlook there, especially if external Western props and disasters like guns were removed, uh, there'd be more hope there than here. More of that later. I was sucked into that. Shortly after Newton, within 100 years, Laplace, a practicing Catholic, says to Napoleon when asked where God fits into his science, he says... Sire, I have no need of the hypothesis of God to do science. And that, of course, is absolutely true. Nobody would have got to the point of doing science the way we did without God, but once it had been shown to work, you don't need to believe in God to do it. 
I did science for many years to find out how much of God's world I could understand without invoking God. The bit you pray about as a scientist is not the work you're doing. You pray about what choices you make as to the sort of work you should do. Because the art of being funded is to choose the right question. Science can't tell you that. It's well worth praying about what are the important questions. And when you do, as usual, God answers. Uh, One of the characteristics, I think, of many serious Christian researchers is that they don't plough the same furrow as everybody else. Um, It's better that way. That's where your prayers come in. How you spend your time, what you read and what your background is, what feeds into what you do is very important. It turned out, for instance, in the context of malnutrition. How many of you have seen a severely malnourished child so far? A good number of you. Well, the natural tendency when you look at a child is to say how awfully sick it is, right? Because you rarely see more sick children than severely malnourished children. But the real question that, that drove the research successfully is, why is this child alive? It ought to be dead. It was answering that question that opened the door to progress. Not treating it as pathology, but teaching it as an incredible adaptation purchased at a high cost. Uh, it's, a tip, it's an example of what I'm trying to tell you. But I became the reductionist within, I guess, a year of starting clinical medicine. I began to see the job as solving problems. And the problems were defined in pathophysiological terms. The patient disappeared into the machine metaphor. Public health does the same, doesn't it? You see, you inhabit the older story. There's no way you would propose a condom as a solution to AIDS, right? That's a mechanical solution or a technological solution to a moral problem they almost invariably fail. And they usually turn you into bankrupt as well. There was a lovely paper a few years ago, well, more than a few years ago now, but it's worth digging out, called Condoms and Seatbelts. It's written by two epidemiologists in London. As far as I know, we're not Christian. But they have that quirky British sense of humour. And they had noticed that if you actually play with the data a little bit, that the introduction of condoms does not reduce sexually transmitted disease. Neither do seatbelts reduce death on the road. Seatbelts reduce the death of people in cars on the road. But they actually increase the death of pedestrians and cyclists, in Britain at least. Now, that's hardly surprising, because when you buckle up, you begin to feel like a Formula One racing driver, and you go faster, and speed kills. Uh, condoms are the same, you see. Um, uh, were any of you there at the Second World AIDS Conference where that woman got to the microphone? and Somehow, how they let her through, I don't know, but she got there and it was a question session. And there were all these experts on preventing AIDS sitting a, a panel and she got to the microphone and she held up a condom and said, which of you would have sex with an HIV-positive person having only this? as your protection. Dead silence. None of them would. Because they know the statistics. I haven't seen a model for the spread of HIV that doesn't uh, put the number of sexual partners in the formula raised at least to the power three and sometimes to the power four. Or even five, I believe. Now, what that means is that the number of partners is by far and away the most important determinant of the spread of a disease, of this disease. Condoms don't stop that. And they have at least, well, even theoretically, I think 7% is the best they dare pretend that it uh, is. And, of course, in real terms, when people are drunk and all the rest, it's going to be 10 or 20% or more. Now, you do, the, you do the, the figures. If you live in, shall we say, uh, Soweto with a 30% prevalence of HIV positivity, to just use a condom is like 
playing Russian roulette with two or three bullets in the chambers, isn't it? You don't. It's a frequent activity. It's not worth doing. Surely you can multiply two figures together and find out that you don't accept the number that comes out. It's too frightening for words. Yet the UN continues to propose this as a solution. And when Uganda gets a reduction in the prevalence of HIV, largely by returning to tribal taboos, they refuse to acknowledge it. And they still want to put it down to condoms, which is not true. And we, of course, go along because we're frightened of being labelled as some kind of geek. But just ask questions, you know. There are questions you can ask. Do any of you know a model in which prevalence of, of uh, sexual activity isn't the major factor? And does a condom make you more or less likely to have sex? Yeah. It's, it's a no-brainer. Um, we need to uh, recognise that. And for the students here, very shortly, you will hear your mentors saying, just give me the facts, doctor. And if you've taken a good history, you should be in a position to say, so do you mean the physical facts or do you wish the moral ones as well? You'll take a little risk, but it's a question. Uh, (laughs) And no mentor can refuse a question. And of course, in actual fact, this is not a joke at all, is it? Some of you have either no hair or grey hair indices, which indicate that you've practiced medicine for, for some years. How many of you have got more than 15 years under your belt? Enough for my purposes. Uh, some of us here, I know, have got 50 years under our belt or close to it. Um, when you began in medicine and you were doing, shall we say, family practice or internal medicine, What proportion of the patients coming to see you, uh, in the groups who've had some years' experience, came to see you because of what God or nature had done to them, and what proportion came to you with a disease for which they were at least in part responsible? Well, for people my age, the typical figure is 70% came when we started because of what God or nature had done. Even smoking was not wrong when I started in medicine. That's how long ago it was. We were just beginning to realize it was wrong. Uh, Only about 20 to 30 came with, you know, things due to alcohol or sex or or obesity, all of which are to a degree self-induced. What about now? What proportion of patients in family practice in America come because of what they've done to themselves, at least in part? Hmm? Yeah, reversed and more sometimes. If you're in an inner city clinic, it's almost everyone, isn't it? Now, if you are sick and suffering because of what you have done to yourself and those you say you love are suffering with you, what else are you dealing with as well as a medical diagnosis? Guilt. There's no medicine for guilt. The only solutions to guilt are confession, repentance, restitution, reconciliation, justification, grace. Isn't it amazing? As far as I know, I have yet to find a medical textbook of internal medicine with those words in the index. We're in denial, aren't we? This is why the church has to come back into medicine, but only when it has realized that it carries the heavy armament, not us. What we need from science is a little humility. We need a recognition that utilitarian uh, ethics are not sufficient. The end does not justify the means. To do the right thing for the wrong reason, as Eliot beautifully put it, is the greatest treason. When I first went to Africa and found nurses uh, propounding the work of Planned Parenthood and calling themselves Christian, uh, I had a problem. We need to rethink. And thank God the African... uh, Leaders are beginning to tell the UN Women's Committee to go where they ought to go. And we should support them in so doing. I've been to Jamaica three times in the last year to help the people there resist uh, United Nations bullying to get a uh, draconian law which would not only make 
abortion freely uh, accessible but would make every doctor who refused to have anything to do with it liable to both a fine and imprisonment for each offence. Time to wake up. And I must stop because there are other things to do. Uh, you probably want to eat. Uh, but uh, you cannot practice medicine effectively where God is conceived of as being either angry or fatalistic. Uh, God loves us and that is what we have to model and our ethics must model it too. Thank you. I don't know whether there are any questions. It's a bit late. You probably all want to run. Why don't you run and anybody who wants to talk to me can come and do so. I have a few CDs with me if people are interested in any of this sort of stuff. Uh, they're basically fundraisers for the college I run. And I always take this opportunity, whether I'm giving it or not. Um, if you have any young people that you know who are about to go to university to study psychology or the social sciences because they don't know what they want to do, send them to us first. Uh, Augustine College, you can get, there's even, Donna's there, yes. We have at least one who's sent a child to us, and she will gladly talk to you about the benefits. We take the 80% probability that you will have a damaged faith by the end of residency or university and turn it into a 90% probability that it will be flourishing. And we do it by teaching the history of ideas. Because you are taught in the university today by highly intelligent people who are actually barbarians when it comes to education. And they pontificate outside their areas of expertise. And you don't know when they're doing that. But when we teach you the history of ideas, you do, and you can tell them so. Uh, when you get Dawkins and people like him occasionally referring to the fact that the medievals believed in a flat earth, for instance, nowhere, anywhere in a piece of writing by a Christian of any repute has that ever been said. They all knew it was round. The Greeks knew four or five centuries before Christ. It's utter rubbish. And yet you still hear it in the universities all the while. Um, we teach you that stuff. Uh, oh, we have uh, a graduate of the program back there, Cassie. You should uh, talk to her too. She'd uh, tell you how bad I am and uh, probably tell you you should still come. Yeah, thank you. Okay, you're free.